forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and pickleball enthusiast. Oh my god, hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and explain pickleball. Well, I recently went home to New York, and my dad has started playing pickleball, like, within the last year. And for those of you who aren't in the retirement community, pickleball (laughs) is, it's like, kind of like, imagine playing ping pong, but you're standing on the court. Okay. It's so it's like a lot of volleys, it's like... It's really fun. And I like played it briefly with him and John when we were in New York. And then this past weekend, John and I bought our own rackets (laughs) and uh, balls. And we went to like these public courts and these people were like, oh, yeah, come play with us. We just sub people in. It's like you just like rotate who plays. And we met all these lovely people who like are part of this pickleball community. And it was very exciting. Pickleball is like racquetball. What is it? just described it to you it's like standing in a ping pong table oh okay mal's dad is very into pickleball and also an older gentleman in new york said in new york area so i feel like this is like a thing oh it's huge it's super fun and it's i think easier to pick up than tennis but you still get that that racquetball thrill because you used to be a tennis player well yeah i still play tennis but i used to be a a good tennis player and now i'm an okay tennis player (laughs) You were going to go pro, right? No. <laughs> you were going to at least play college, right? I mean, there was a chance that if I like had it, I had knee issues and gone to boarding school, which meant I couldn't play year round anymore. There was like a version of my life where I maybe, maybe, maybe could have been like D3, but I doubt even that. I want to, who is that version of Allison? A D3 tennis player. I don't know who that version is. I've had to learn how to like turn off my competitiveness while playing. Really? Yeah, because now I don't care if I win or anything. I just want to, like, play well. So, like, if I play a point and, like, I play well in that point, but I still lose that point, I don't care because I'm just like, oh, thank God I I got the ball over. I get very frustrated bowling because I, like, want... I do well, but then if I, like, don't do well in front of people, I'm like, no, you don't understand. I'm good at this. And bowling couldn't be lower stakes. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. When I played like varsity gay league kickball, I like didn't super care about how I came across. But for some reason, if like I'm bowling and people are like watching me and they're like, you're not doing well, I feel like I feel like icky. Like I'm like, no, you don't understand because it like destroys a version of myself in my head where I'm very good at bowling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm horrible at bowling. I wasn't allowed to bowl. My last relationship, I always wanted to go bowling as a date. I think it's a fun date. We were on a double date bowling, but yeah. um, my ex never wanted to bowl because the uh, their parents are divorced. And they said that whenever they were hanging out with their dad and the dad didn't know what to do with them or how to talk to them, he would bring them bowling. So it was a triggering experience. <laughs> but I like think it's such a perfect date. Yeah, it's fun. But I like to play with bumpers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games and brutal honesty. Do you think you would bring if you were going on a date, a date with someone, would you bring them to pickleball? What? Like if you were a pickleball player, 
And then you were like on going on like a third date with someone. Would you be like, do you want to come play pickleball with me? No, I'm not good enough yet at pickleball. You want to do something where you're really good at it. So you show off to them. Or I just have to like be more comfortable with them. Third date feels too soon to pickleball. (laughs) But maybe not. I would maybe play tennis on a third. I would play tennis on a third date probably. Because you have like some skills. I just feel more comfortable. Like pickleball, like the rules of pickleball are actually like kind of confusing. And so I don't feel confident enough yet that I could like teach somebody how to play pickleball because I'm still learning how to play pickleball. What if they're a professional pickleball player? Would you invite them? Well, they'd probably invite me. (laughs) Okay, well, we have a great show for you this week. Actually, we're going to be talking to Emmett Ali Akbar and uh, we're going to talk all about the gig economy and economics of delivery apps. He has a really great podcast um, called Delivery Wars that Alice and I both listen to. And this conversation is so interesting. Yeah, there's a lot more going on when you order delivery food than you might think. It was it's fascinating. It's really we didn't even get to all the stuff, but like we got to so much fascinating shit. And there was like maybe like even like 20 more minutes of fascinating shit we could have talked about. So, yeah, but not a second more than 20 minutes. That's the end of the fascination. Um, And later, we're going to be discussing getting older, both our age-related fears and our age-related reliefs, perhaps? And what happens when you go to that beach that makes you old. Oh, my God. That movie? (laughs) (laughs) But first, we have to answer a listener's question. So you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Alex! Colorado. So Alex from Colorado says, Dear Gabby and Allison, TLDR, how do you navigate dating as a baby queer and falling for the first person you sleep with who also inconveniently lives across the country? This is the gayest question we've ever received. Very long version. I would argue not that long. I'd argue medium version. Medium. I'm a 27-year-old cis woman, she, her, and I recently came out as queer and broke up with my boyfriend of five years to better understand my sexuality on my own. Three years ago, I became really close friends with my then coworker, S, she, her, who is queer. We both developed huge crushes on each other, almost culminating in a saucy kiss one night. (laughs) But we didn't kiss because I had a boyfriend. I was also not yet ready to accept my sexual orientation at the time. So I brushed it off the next day and told her I was drunk and it didn't mean anything. And that my OCD made me question my orientation sometimes. I have OCD, but not really around sexual orientation. I just wasn't ready to accept it yet. This really hurt S and led to an abrupt end of our friendship. We didn't talk at all for two years until about a month ago. Now I'm out and single. S and I recently reconnected and I explained everything to her. I ended up visiting her in her city and we really hit it off. We had amazing sex, an intimate emotional connection, and we both really like each other. The problem is we live across the country from each other and I'm still a baby gay trying to understand who I am and what I like in dating partners. How should S and I navigate this very obvious physical and emotional connection that we have between us? Should we keep talking, visiting each other, hooking up when we do? She's the first person I have slept with who is not a cis man, and I am still so new to the queer dating scene. Please send help. P.S. You all are awesome, and listening to your podcast is a highlight of my week, and you are both very funny. Thanks for all that you do. P.P.S. 
S is also a JBU listener hey. and wants your advice. We talked about this. Ha ha. She will absolutely scream the good kind if you end up reading this question <laughs> on the pod. So hello, S. <laughs> okay. I This is so adorable. Wow. This is so, so cute. I think you're putting way too much on this. I think this is all good stuff. This is so wonderful. Like the anxiety, I get it. I totally get it. But like, I think living in the moment is what you need to do because this is just like so um, special and great. You know, like your first queer relationship, your first queer experience is like, you know, the best case scenario is that it's like special and good and all that. I think that you should keep seeing each other. I think that like, you don't need to make a huge commitment about it. Like you don't need to decide like now we are monogamously with each other and you know, this is the thing. But I don't agree. There's some sort of like common thing about like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, the thing is like, you shouldn't marry your first girlfriend if you're queer. You shouldn't, you know, be with the first person that you're with as a queer person. I kind of disagree. I think that that invalidates like some of your past relationships or your agency in some ways because it's dismissive. It's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about yet. And I think like you do, you you know, you know what liking someone is like. You know when you want to be with someone. That kind of hasn't changed. So I think that I don't think there's any problem in terms of like you being a baby gay and getting into a relationship. Now, obviously, like the stereotype is that either you completely U-Haul and shack up and like get married and like get married within like six months to your first <laughs> girlfriend, or you realize like pretty quickly that you know, you're so new to this world and you're so excited by everything in it that you want to explore all of it. You want to, you want to like be really in community in the messy sort of beautiful way that queers are in community. And so I think this is a conversation you should have about like, I think this is maybe a little bit more about like monogamy or about like your level of commitment to each other. Like, is one of you planning on moving? Is one of you Maybe that's something that could happen in a year, in in two years. Would S be hurt if you hooked up with someone else in your city? And how much do you feel like you want to explore way more before you settle down again? Because you had this boyfriend of five years um, and maybe you're just used to settling down and really want to settle down. But you did, you know, do a really brave thing, which is break up to better understand your sexuality. So I understand the impulse to get into another relationship immediately because you really like being in a relationship. But also there is so much to explore once you're in a whole new dating pool and a whole new community that I think you should remind us that maybe you need to explore a little bit before like fully committing. And how does she feel about that? Or I think this is definitely one of those times where checking in with yourself can be really helpful because is the issue here that like you personally feel like you want to explore more and that you don't want to commit to the first person you have a connection with? Or do you feel like you should explore more and right. you shouldn't commit to the person. Right. And it's more like these societal expectations that like you are like worried that you're going to like mess up. Yeah. Because I think, you know, and I obviously I can't speak to the queer experience of it all, but I think having gone from being engaged and now seriously dating the first person I started talking to really after that, there's this element of like, oh, well, is this too easy in a way? Mm -hmm. Or like, mm -hmm. is, should I, does it feel like I'm 
I'm jumping into just like the first thing. But then when I look at like the reality of like the quality of my relationship, I'm like, this is the best relationship I've been in. And this Mm -hmm. is wonderful. And our connection is really strong. And so to throw away that kind of connection because of like shoulds or Mm -hmm. like expectations, you're really only harming yourself. Mm-hmm. That said, you might also feel like you want to explore more. And then I think definitely having those open communications, talking about it, what works for both of you. And I think what you said about like, it's really more an issue of like monogamy versus non-monogamy, I think kind of hits the nail on the head because it is a long distance. And, right. you know, to make a commitment to somebody long distance is mm-hmm. a really big thing. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it is a little bit more of like taking a few months before deciding to be monogamous, mm-hmm. but... I think when you have a really strong connection with someone, that's wonderful. It's such a gift. Um, And it's such a gift that this person came back around into your life, that you get a second chance. Like, you know, I also think that queers can be very judgmental in terms of like the seasoned queer with the baby gay and like the Mm. stereotype in a lot of uh, lesbian movies where, you know, the person is closeted and with a boyfriend and is swept away by this magical woman. And this woman is such a seasoned queer and maybe she's also a carpenter or something, you know, like that's like the narrative. And so I think I get not wanting to like fall into that cliche. And also, you know, I think queer people are pretty judgmental sometimes amongst ourselves in terms of like, oh, it's the first. It's like, you know, she's going to marry her first girlfriend and stuff, which like, uh, I think. Why is that bad? I don't know. You know, I have two friends who they met when my friend was 18 and now they've been together five or six years, five years. And everyone is sort of like expected like, oh, well, you met when you were teenagers, so you're not going to be each other's like final person you know that would be that would be nuts or whatever and neither of them are particularly like neither of them are particularly monogamous neither of them are particularly like the type of people who wanted to find each other that young of an age and be together like it's not that wasn't their plan and Mm -hmm. it's sort of like wild to both of them that they're still together and they still work after meeting at 18 to like now kind of mid 20s ish and they're like should we break up like is this a thing like we're we don't want to break up we're really happy together but like We met at 18. We're going to be together till we're old. Like, this is crazy. Then on the flip side, it's like, you're happy. It's a perfect, wonderful relationship. Not perfect, but you know what I mean? Perfectly wonderful. Like, and wow, how, what a gift that you found each other that young. Like, you know, so I think they've kind of now sort of like let that go. But it is like a thing that gets judged where like if they say, oh, we've been together, you know, six years and then people go, oh my God, you met when you guys were 18. Like people are judgy about it. Yeah. But I I also think that there, I I know that it's like, very different to when when you come out but like you are older you do have relationship experience that's like, what i'm saying yeah like, i mean you know. i guess when you come out you kind of start over in like a puberty where like you know a lot of stuff changes and who you're attracted to changes like i don't think i could not have predicted where i'm at now so like definitely a lot of like queer growth happened but like you can't really predict that that's why i'm saying be in the present right you can't predict that you know what i mean you can just like enjoy the present that's all you can do yeah but it feels like a a big waste to not give this connection a a real shot. Yeah. And queerness is a journey. It is a journey. But like if everybody's going in with eyes wide open, then like I don't think there's a problem. And I think like the stigma that we have about when did you meet and how old were you and how long had you been out and how long had you been gay and how long had you been single is like, who cares? Again, it's it's all going to come back to communication and just like making sure that you're on the same page. And if you do decide 
to commit to this relationship. And then a year from now, you decide, you realize that like, you do want to explore other things. It's like just making sure that you're being honest about that mm-hmm. and, and sharing that. And you, but like, you know, you can have the best laid plans in the world, follow mm-hmm. every single thing that you're supposed to do and the relationship can still implode. Exactly. And also, how are you supposed to get your first gay relationship if you're like, oh, I shouldn't be, you know what I mean? Like, how are you supposed to like, be in one if you don't go in one with someone you have a connection with. I guess maybe the idea of hooking up with other people first. Yeah, or like, or the idea of like, maybe S is anxious about, well, in a year you'll wanna leave me because you'll do this. But like, Mm. again, it's just like communication. And I don't know, like I have bisexual friends who are married and it's like, to me, I'm non-monogamous. So I'm like, oh, I think like I would, you know, wanna see other people and they're like, No, I'm perfectly happy to like be in this relationship and like, you know, not sleep with the other uh, other gendered people and that and like people are judgy about that. People are going to find a reason to like have opinions about whatever. And so I think just go for it and just see what's right for you. Like try to get rid of all the noise and sit with yourself and sit with us and figure out what makes sense for the two of you Mm -hmm. in this moment as you are now and then forget the other stuff. But it sounds very lovely and exciting. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. If you want to submit your international question and make your partner scream, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Emmett Ali Akbar. Stay tuned. back to just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have emmet ali akbar emmet ali akbar is a writer and the host of the podcast delivery wars which explores the economics of food delivery apps hello so uh, my first question is how bad of people are we for using food delivery apps (laughs) i don't think you're bad people i think it's like so unrealistic the price we use and specifically i'm talking about delivery food delivery apps right that's what we're talking about which Mm -hmm. is this idea that like your local restaurant can deliver to you they've made it so cheap and convenient that it's hard to say no like you kind of get addicted like they like to tap the idea that once you start using it you kind of don't stop because Mm -hmm. it's so it adds a level of access to your life like let's say you're in a crisis and you need food your kitchen's on fire you know you have people over whatever whatever kind of thing you kind of can't it's hard to go back. Um, That being said, uh, it does add a lot of stress to the restaurants, right? Like they are being charged a 20 to 30% commission fee, sometimes more, sometimes less, actually, depending on the place you're in. Like in New York, it can be less. And, you know, restaurants are not a place, like not a huge money-making place. That's a really hard business. Everyone who tells you like, I want to start a restaurant, uh, you got to tell them it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's not an easy thing. So taking 20 to 30% out of their order, it's not super great for them. Um, Depends on if you like... If you want to keep your local businesses alive, I think the best way to support them is to actually walk over there or give them maybe give them a call on their direct line. Sometimes nowadays restaurants are starting their own websites where you can order delivery. I don't think you're a bad person. I do it too. I, I sometimes I try to stop, but it's hard. Sometimes there are moments where I'm like, I don't have another option. I have to use, you know, Grubhub or DoorDash. So having listened to this whole podcast, there's 
a lot going on in this world and the evolution of it. And one of the things that I find the most shocking is even with the pandemic and the food orders going up so much, these companies aren't actually profitable. <laughs> and can you speak to that? Like, is it is this all about to burst? Like, will we still have Postmates in 10 years? Uh, yeah, that blew my mind too, because I, I came in from the restaurant side and not so much the technology side. So you assume like these technological companies that are going public and, and you know, are spreading through America like rapid fire. You imagine they're very successful on every level. And then you learn they're not making a profit and you're kind of, your mind is kind of blown. This is like a really typical model in the tech world, which is they get a lot of investor money and they spend a lot of money to get you kind of used to the service. So what Amazon kind of really pioneered, and this is what some of the earlier seasons of this podcast uh, did. The podcast is actually called Land of the Giants Delivery Wars. So it's part of a series about these other tech companies like uh, Amazon, Google. And this is a really typical thing that they will figure out the, the profitability later. They will make you addicted to it. I think we're seeing some of the, of, the, of the ripples of what can happen with Uber right now, where Uber is kind of struggling. The prices are going up for the consumer, right? Like you'll see people talk about like, when did Uber get so expensive? Like mm-hmm. it's this trip used to be $20 and now it's $50. And that's because all that investor money, that startup VC money is dr- kind of like, you have to make a transition towards becoming profitable for your shareholders when you go public, like Uber does. Grubhub and DoorDash are public now. So they have to worry about profitability metrics pretty soon. Question of whether the last, I don't know. A lot of people, I'm not like an expert on that by any means. I don't think anyone really knows. but they're going to be facing a lot of pressure in the next like 10 years or so. And maybe the model will change. A lot of people have a lot of ideas of how this could change. Personally, I have no idea. (laughs) But I do think I was really surprised at how shaky of a ground a lot of the restaurant delivery companies are on. And and also how how good of a deal we're getting as consumers. Like you think like DoorDash is expensive and we're still getting an amazing deal actually because it costs a lot of money to pay a delivery worker. Yeah, so I was going to ask, okay, so obviously like I remember... Uh, having menus in your house and ordering direct from, you know, pizza or, you know, certain whatever restaurant delivered, which wasn't every restaurant. So like once these apps were created, how quickly do we get from like restaurants doing their own delivery and like people being drivers for certain restaurants to then all of these driver apps? Like what was the history of of sort of getting there? So this ties with the gig economy, which is a word that even a lot of the drivers use um, when I spoke to them. This kind of came to prominence like in the mid-2010s with Uber and, and, and Lyft kind of becoming a part of our lives. It created like this kind of workforce. But prior to that, like Seamless, for instance, was like a really early one. They basically just were like an online place where you would go place orders for restaurants that already had delivery drivers. Like mm-hmm. the, It was like the pizza guy kind of tradition, which, you know, I grew up with, um, that like they employ their own drivers. So at a certain point, Postmates was one of the big companies you mentioned earlier. Like people in the West Coast are really familiar with Postmates. I'm not so familiar with them because I've always been in the East and Midwest. But basically, they popularized this idea that, okay, there's all these drivers for Uber and Lyft. Why don't we just have them deliver food as well? Um, so like it kind of happened in the mid 2010s and it's just, you know, in fact, in the last year, like a lot of the last year or two with the pandemic, a lot of the need for drivers dried up and a lot of need for meaning like rideshare drivers, whereas the need for food delivery rose with the pandemic because people weren't really going around so much. So we saw a lot of that 
kind of gig workforce economy move towards uh, driving for and delivering for food. And can we talk a bit about the gig economy of it all? You know, I think there's this kind of mix of people feeling like I get to set my own hours, I get to be my own boss. And then there's also like the stark reality of like that they're not making that much money. They're actually not really their own boss because these apps sort of like, you know, can like favoritize drivers and sort of manipulate how they behave. And so is this a good thing for workers or is this a terrible thing for workers or is it more complex? <laughs> can, I, can I can I ask what you guys think? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that okay? Like, I'm really curious what you guys think because I came away from it often quite confused about, yeah. like, about it. So I want to know like what you guys think just looking at it as, as people who didn't spend as much time like in this world. I feel like I can't see the picture, the big picture as much in, in that way. It's interesting being in California because we had this whole, prop, it was Proposition 22, 22. 22, which was that like we tried to change the rules so that like these drivers would be employees and then they would be under employee law and like they get all these extra benefits. And then big companies like Uber and DoorDash are like fought back and tried to pass this proposition saying that they don't have to abide by these new rules. And having lived in California, there was so much advertising about it. There was so much promotion about it. And it was all, you know, if you watched a commercial that was put out by Uber, you would be like, yeah, I should vote for this. But then like, if you talk to more people, you were like, oh, actually, I shouldn't vote for this. And, and then it was like kind of really disappointing that the proposition passed because it made it so that the gig workers weren't employees. And so it's hard because because it's like sometimes I think people vote against their own interests because mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. potentially being told something that isn't actually true. Mm -hmm. But again, that would mean that for consumers, the price would go up and then would as many people be using the apps. And so mm -hmm. it's a really tough situation. Yeah, I had, you know, my I thought I had my opinion. And then when I was listening to the podcast, you know, the whole thing about well, if you become an employee, then you can't drive for multiple apps. If you become an employee, like you might be subject to hours and things like that. And I was like, oh, damn, like <laughs> I didn't yeah. even think of that. So yeah. it is like super complicated. And I think we've done we've made it complicated. And I think right. the the apps have sort of, you know, like it's interesting of if you were a delivery driver for a restaurant, you would know, you know, you would be at the restaurant doing stuff and then you would drive and you would know I work for this restaurant and, and you would kind of come in and have hours and stuff. And then I really I enjoyed the person that you interviewed who was like, I actually like that I just sit and wait for a delivery that I don't have to go into like the pizza place right. and like help out. But but then that person is an employee of the pizza place, which is more secure. It just was really twisted the way that employment law kind of always is. Yeah. It hasn't yet caught up, I guess, is, is part of the issue. Like, Allison, what you said about, like, not being able to work for multiple companies, like, there's a world in which you're, like, working one of these jobs for, like, 35 hours to get your benefits, but you're also working for other companies on the side. Like, it wouldn't preclude that potentially, whereas I think the apps want to sort of, like, if they, if they were to do the employment thing, they would probably want people to be, like, loyal to one company. And in fact, this comes up now. There's this idea that I don't think we talked about in the podcast, but came up in the reporting, which is multi-apping. So, like, the drivers sometimes will see, like, oh, I can get an order from DoorDash and, and Uber from the same plaza going to 
into the same area. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick up two things and, 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 and take it to the two different people. And it's more efficient all around for me as a driver. The, the apps say like, that's not good for the customer, right? Like, you know, those extra two or three minutes might make their the, the food stale, I guess, or, <laughs> or whatever. But like, uh, you know, these are kind of the questions that come up around like who has really the control, I think is the, is the thing, like the idea of the employment is kind of maybe a distraction and it's really about like how much freedom and independence are these drivers really getting and if they're not getting freedom and independence they should be getting more benefits as like an employee status would give them and that's kind of the argument the government has actually made while well, was really like all three forms of the california government was saying like they're essentially employees you have to give them the benefits that our labor laws since the new deal have, have said and i i fundamentally basically agree with that like these people need to be given the benefits if they're working that kind of job and i think there's like a compromise in there but i think what it reveals is that the app economy is built on pretty shaky grounds if you mm-hmm. if you had to make them employees and you couldn't do the business anymore and the customers it would be too expensive for the customers it's probably an unrealistic business but we're yeah. like you know we're like 10 years into this so it's like hard to say like let's get rid of this whole thing that is you know it has benefited a lot of people like you can hear a lot of the people who work on the apps they it's it's been good for them financially you know it's mm-hmm. like there's a lot of bad jobs out there and if somebody has a you know good job that like lets them live a more dignified life that's also good but they probably don't realize that they could be getting even more out of it and the the fact that they're like not being paid for waiting like that person you mentioned who is right. waiting around i thought that's so like kind of wild that you could be on the clock for like 4 hours get no deliveries and you don't get any money out of that like that mm-hmm. to me is really not okay that's not okay in my view can we talk about the illusion of of working for yourself so like you know, the paradox of becoming a top dasher and what happens when you are deactivated. And I was so fascinated by the idea of nudges. Like, what are some of the ways where people have the illusion that they're, you know, their own boss or like even you were talking about the wording of like partners rather than drivers. Can you expand on that? Sure. So I think the the number one thing every driver says is I get to be my own boss. I get to set my own schedule. I think that's the thing that I'll focus on, which is when you get into it, Places like DoorDash like to flood the market with drivers. They want to have drivers everywhere so that you can get whatever you want as a consumer, whenever you want it, from anywhere you want it. Like that's our kind of goal, right? Complete access to everything, no matter what. But what that means is sometimes there's drivers not working. So they do control it a little bit. They set schedules. They ask you to pre-schedule a block. And the pre-scheduled block is not always a guarantee of work. Mm -hmm. Like we talked to one driver who says like, typically he doesn't need to sign up like for pre-scheduled blocks that, you know, DoorDash offers. And then he signs on and just waits on certain days for like hours at a time. So like he really needs to do DoorDash's thing where he signs up for the blocks in order to guarantee work. He can't truly just sign on whenever he wants, which is kind of the message that they're receiving. Now, of course, like the ease of it is like kind of amazing. Like I've, I've never worked on these apps personally, but it does kind of blow my mind that I could be like, Eh, let's go see if I can get some deliveries and you can mm-hmm. just turn it on and, and go. But in places that's like in New York where like there's a lot of delivery, but there was this uh, woman in, she was in Coeur d'Alene uh, and in Coeur d'Alene, 
you can't just like start delivering from your drive from your driveway. You have to drive to the downtown area and then turn on your app. So it's like there's a certain guiding that's happening by the apps that isn't like a complete the complete freedom that they say it is. Um, and the nuances vary depending on apps. Like I don't want to say like every single app is exactly the same, but there there's a lot of ways in which you don't have full control of your schedule, even though it seems like you do. And that they encourage you to accept all orders, even though some right. orders might not be profitable for you based mm-hmm. on like the distance and the the time it will take and everything yeah thank you for bringing that up that's the other major thing that drivers talked about is like you're in Coeur d'Alene Idaho and you have to drive 15 miles for a three dollar order mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like and that's going back and forth you know what I mean that's right. like that's like half an hour of work that's, yeah. that's a dollar fifty and that's not including for per hour that's like a dollar fifty mm-hmm. that's not including gas it's a net zero if you take that order and if you we had the same driver who said like she loves DoorDash it's a great job for her and then after we interviewed her she actually actually got deactivated because she was declining too many orders or she wasn't completing enough orders. It's like a combination of the two. Like, let's say you show up at the restaurant and the restaurant's like, uh, this order will actually be ready in an hour, which if you ever order from a restaurant, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you, you know, restaurants are really slow. So like, it's no longer worth it for her, right? She's like, somebody else can pick up this order. I'm not going to wait here for an hour because they're, they're, they're accepting an order that's like, let's say if it's like a $15 order, if you're waiting like five minutes, that's amazing. That's a great rate. But if you're waiting an hour and a half, the, the, the price of it goes down a lot for you. Like a lot of drivers are always doing this calculation, regardless of whether they like DoorDash and Uber Eats or not, but it's doing this calculation, like, is it worth it? And it's like really hard to tell a lot of times. And it's just kind of a technique, I guess, that is kind of unique to the gig economy is like, is this job worth it? And you can mm-hmm. be punished by the app if you like veer too conservatively on the side of like not delivering, not accepting orders that are basically not paying you anything. You have to be good with the bosses. You know, the bosses <laughs> have to like you. It's got to, it's, they have like this app of balls. Exactly. And then another element that was really interesting was that multiple restaurant owners referred to the apps as the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> So funny. I want to talk about that. What is the food monopoly like mafia aspect of it? <laughs> so it's really funny in New York because in New York, the two of the restaurants we talked to use a third party delivery service. Mm-hmm. So they basically said like Grubhub is really popular in New York and seamless. So they use this like third party delivery service. And you'd think like, okay, they're not using Grubhub for their del- delivery drivers. Why wouldn't they just get off and do delivery on their own? Well, the problem is they have all the market, like everyone who mm-hmm. wants to go order, like what do you, what are, what are the three of us doing want to order? We just go to Grubhub and we scroll through we get, or, or DoorDash and we just go like, what's good tonight? That's the access that, that they're paying for. They're paying to be listed online. So to them, they, that feels like the mafia because the, what does the mafia do? It's like, if you want to exist here, we pay us you know, 10% of your cut and you'll be okay. You can like be here without being being harassed. So these two different restaurant owners <laughs> independently, like I didn't tell them the other guy referred to it as the mafia. They both independently referred to Grubhub as the mafia in New York City um, because they couldn't even be in the game without them. Like, and they didn't feel that they were providing enough of a service for them to be worth the 15 to 20% they were paying them. Can we talk about ghost kitchens and cloud kitchens? And my favorite thing is when you go on the app and then it's like something like, it's just wings. And then you order and it's TGI Fridays. Like, can we, okay. That was Chili's. Chili's. Okay, like spell that out for people because I don't think people realize that's happening. Yeah, so 
I think my favorite one that we didn't end up reporting on is Chuck E. Cheese. No, that, you did! Pascali's uh, Pizza! <laughs> right, that's right. But uh, there's like a big story there, which is basically like Chuck E. Cheese is what? It's a place you go to with kids, right? You go in person to Chuck E. Cheese, play arcade games, jump into a ball pit, like, and then there's the animatronic mouse with the pizza. Well, they said like, well, our kitchen is not always working because the kids eat at like lunchtime and dinner time. How can we like increase our volume? So we're delivering pizza and our kitchen is making pizza at all times of day. People are not going to order Chuck E. Cheese when they see it on the app, right? So they've made this thing called Pascali's Pizza, which is such a funny name to me, spelled with a Q. I think Pascali is one of the animals, but don't is, is quote it? me on that. Yeah. I think you might be right. So yeah, they, they just list like a kind of different menu. It's not exactly the same as Chuck E. Cheese, right? It's like slightly different, but to a kitchen, like the branding doesn't matter, right? Like it's still, you know, the chicken cheese pizza or, or whatever. They just name it something differently. So customers order and they don't even realize that they're ordering from Chuck E. Cheese. Like you mentioned with, it's just wings. Like every restaurant kind of, a lot of the restaurant chains, I would say, are getting into this. But what's even weirder about it is that like there's these kind of online virtual dining concepts, which is the deli, your local deli might say the same thing. Like I am getting like a lot of sandwiches at this time, but I wish I could be like selling milkshakes all day long. So like there'll be like a celebrity milkshake brand that will just like give the menu to the your local deli and they'll be delivering it for them. One example would be like Mariah's Cookies. Like if you go on DoorDash right now, you can probably find a place called Mariah's Cookies. Mariah is Mariah Carey. (laughs) Which I like, there's no Mariah Carey on it. Like when you look at it, you don't see her face or anything. It's just called Mariah's Cookies. There's very few or if any in-person Mariah's Cookies places. It's just like your local, like Brio Italian Grill. It's your local deli. It's whatever. Like they're just baking these cookies and sending them out and stick, like putting a Mariah's Cookies sticker on it. So that's like kind of mind blowing. And also what, like a lot of people think that this question that you asked earlier about the sustainability, a lot of people think like this is where it's going. Like maybe like in-person dining will be like a separate experience. And when you order on the apps, it's like all these ghost kitchens or online only things where... Like a restaurant is like really an old school model. It's like you have all the space for, in case people show up, but a lot of people do take out. So like their space isn't being used efficiently, I guess. So like you, there might be a d- desire to kind of like separate those two. Like the dine-in is, is a different experience than takeout. Um, right now we have like a mix, like the apps have confused it. Where like your local place probably wasn't designed to do takeout, but they had to adjust to the idea that you, like my local Ethiopian spot does delivery, which is not like a place that I would think would be doing a lot of delivery, but apparently they do like 40 to 50% of their, their stuff is delivery. And it's because customers expect it. They expect mm-hmm. to be able to get anything on, online. So like these, you know, folks have to like decide how to do delivery. Like how do you do, Injira is designed to be like a flat piece of, of on like a huge um, kind of circular plate. Now you mm-hmm. have to like stuff it into a container and like send it right. out. Like they have to think about all this stuff. So I don't know, we might see a world in which takeout and dine-in are different, but I don't really know. Uh, and ghost kitchens, I think, are like people's attempt to deal with this kind of tension in the in the model of a restaurant. Because with the ghost kitchen, you don't have that overhead, right? You're literally right. just sort of borrowing someone's existing kitchen to like create your own food that has its own label, but you don't have like service staff. You don't have to have like eating area. So right. it's like a 
workaround. And and like, does it help restaurants that currently exist if they if they like allow all these ghost kitchens to happen in their kitchen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, you could just be delivery only, right? Like you could just be like not even have a place for somebody to walk up and order, like not having somebody man the front and you, you are just a kitchen and you're only on the app. So we talked to like a barbecue place in Chicago that shut down uh, and that's what they do now. They don't have a storefront. They just have a kitchen, which they make their barbecue out of and they, de- and they deliver it. And uh, I think you mentioned cloud kitchens, Gabby. Uh, that's something I didn't dig into as much. I feel like it's kind of a branding thing. Like, like I feel like everyone wants to come up with their own term, like mm-hmm. virtual dining concept, ghost kitchen, cloud kitchen. Yeah. I'm hesitant to say like there's like everybody agrees what those things mean. <laughs> Yeah, it was like kitchen spaces that were like cubicles, right? Right. And you could just like rent one out. I kept thinking the whole time I was listening to the podcast, I was like, but is the food good? Like Mm. how, you know what I mean? Like you're, it's like, okay, so you're getting from, you know, a ghost kitchen or like, you know, some places just like selling like Wiz Khalifa's weed food or whatever you were talking about. But like, is the food good? Are you just getting like generic? You know what I mean? Such a good question. And sadly, I have not had enough of this food to say. <laughs> I mean, I probably unanswerable. It. It's unanswerable, but it's definitely like, you know, you order from from an app and you're going to get kind of like generic Italian or whatever. But like if you go out to some, you know, I'm going to name drop Saragina's in New York. That's a different experience. Right. So, so I will say, though, that this online delivery thing is kind of good for some people. Like I know of a lot of small, you know, obviously like in New York, like a lot of our really most like undersung food purveyors are like immigrant women who like serving whatever thing they can to like support their family, you know, generations of family. And if you have like don't have to set up your own kitchen and you can just go and like to a place where you don't have to worry about customer service. You don't have to worry about, you know, your menu. Somebody sets it, like helps you set it up and all you're doing is just cooking. That's like not the worst way in the world to get into restaurants. So I don't want to say like, it's all like a disaster. Like there's a way in which it enables different kinds of business models that are more kind of tech friendly, you know, like Grubhub's thing for a long time was getting restaurants online. 10 years ago, most restaurants weren't online. Now we're at a place that a lot of people are online. Their menus might be kind of funky like or whatever, but at the very least, you can find them online, which wasn't the case. Now is the question is like, how can they take advantage of the online a bit more? And there might be some models that are useful for people. Feels a little dystopian, but a lot of people like, a lot of food writers I talked to were like, it's actually good because it's hiring people that need jobs, you know, like mm-hmm. it's a way for people to keep like keep businesses going. And that's like kind of key. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't really order delivery that much, but I should I should probably order some of that that like Wiz Khalifa's fully packed bowl. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the funniest thing in the world to me that he called it the fully packed bowl. It's like fried chicken and Cheetos and hot sauce. And <laughs> yeah. Sounds amazing. So, okay. So I wanted to ask about the DoorDash calls and the DoorDash commission. That blew my mind. Can you talk about what that was and DoorDash making money off calls and stuff? So it was Grubhub that we reported on. Oh, it was Grubhub. I'm so sorry. DoorDash, justice for DoorDash. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so it was Grubhub. Okay, so what was this... The sitch there. So basically, this might exist on DoorDash too, by the way, but I just want to like speak about what I reported on and what I know best, which is in Grubhub in New York City, a lot of restaurants were finding that they were getting charged for phone calls. Now, you think about that and you're like, that's kind of weird. How could Grubhub charge a restaurant for a phone call? Mm -hmm. The way they do that is when you go to the Grubhub page for your favorite restaurant, they generate a number that routes through Grubhub first. So you're actually calling the restaurant, but not before Grubhub 
the mafia <laughs> opens the door for you, right? Like, or like, this is why they feel like it's the mafia, right? Like they open the door for you. They're not providing any service besides discovery. Personally, I've done this where I say, I want to call the restaurant d- directly, order from them and reduce the, the commission cost. So I go and they don't like maybe have a website or like maybe Grubhub is the first thing that shows up. So I click on Grubhub, I call that phone number. Now I know they are not getting a benefit from that. They're still being charged. And what's weird about it is they can't determine the order that you've done. Mm -hmm. So they do like an average. So like they do between like for this restaurant, the handful noodle and the expat in in um, Harlem, they were charging between like five to eight dollars, five to seven dollars about like approximately per order. So like if I'm ordering like an $11 noodle for myself and now they're being charged five to seven dollars for that order like that's a crazy amount of money to Mm -hmm. be taking from them um and in a lot of cases it's an algorithm that was determining how to charge because there's nobody on the phone listening actually listening to the calls so the algorithm says you know this call lasts 30 seconds it's an order but sometimes Mm -hmm. it wasn't an order the person was just like hey like do you have this dish like and they were like Mm -hmm. no and they actually hung up and Grubhub was actually char- charging them for that. Yeah. So this is there's a lawsuit actually, a couple of lawsuits that have happened outside of New York City where people have uh, sued Grubhub for it. Grubhub says like, you're right, we should only charge for orders on the phone that result in orders. So they still believe that like they should be able to get money off of phone call orders, but they basically are saying like there are a lot of fraudulent charges. There are some fraudulent charges is their position. Like let's say you also place a burrito order and you go, hey, do you know that burrito I ordered? Can you take the pork off of it? I forgot that there's pork on it. I don't second know. call, yeah. The second call. So they're charging commission on the website and the second call, they're charging like 5 to $7. Scrubhub was like, yeah, that's not cool. We shouldn't do that. Um, and so they say that they've stopped doing it. The kind of messed up part about it too is the restaurants ask for an audit and to get like some of their money back for these double dip cards, double dip calls. And they were like, really, they found it really hard to figure out whether they had been refunded or not. Like I asked a couple of times to this one restaurant, he was like, I don't think I've been refunded, but I don't really know, <laughs> which is wow. kind of crazy to know. Wow. You don't know where your money is going. You know what I mean? You know, obviously it's going to be hard for a lot of us to go cold turkey on not using these apps, but how do we be like a more conscientious consumer? Like, is it making sure that you tip really well if you do use it? Definitely tip your drivers. The drivers are making most of their money off of the tips. So you should definitely tip the drivers really well because they are not going to make a living wage if you don't tip them. Um, I have gotten into fights with some of my friends about this. They're like, I don't tip them. Like, you have to tip them because <gasps> they are not they are not going to get... You have to. You have to tip them. So please tip your drivers. Now, the other thing that I would say is one of the things that the apps have done, like just like, you know, if I can get like a little philosophical, is like distance us from the restaurant, the experience of the restaurant. We don't connect to the restaurant when we when we order through a delivery platform. So my suggestion is if you like a place, it's in your neighborhood, because typically a lot of times you're ordering from a neighborhood, follow them on Instagram or go in person and ask them, what is the best way for me to order for you? You might be surprised to find that they do offer delivery and they're fine with you doing de- doing delivery, but they, they have their own website, they have their own platform. So talk to them, ask them what's best for you. They might say like, we're really struggling and we'd really prefer if you just call on the phone, not through Grubhub's website, but like through our own phone number and you pick up. That's, I think, the way to be a conscientious consumer is to just talk to your restaurants and to tip well and to understand, like to, to, to minimize when you can. Although like I, I totally 
get it. Like some people also have like, I want to note that people have mobility issues. People have kids, you know, mm-hmm. we heard a lot about moms who like, they, it was like a lifesaver for them that they didn't have to cook or, or go grocery shopping with like a, being a single mom alone at home. So I want to acknowledge that there's some benefits for people too. Just, just talk to your restaurants and tip well. That would be my, that would be my, my number, my, my two pieces of advice. And with the tip, are you, you know, cause sometimes these orders are really, you know, cheap, like, should you be doing it off of like the 20% of the order? Or should you have like a base minimum that you're always tipping a driver? Allison, that is a great question. And I didn't, I can't believe I never had that conversation with any of the drivers, but I think they understand, like they can make that decision. Like the, the order is going out to a lot of different drivers, right? So like, if it's like a five minute drive for them, then yeah, like uh, tipping 20% on a, a $12 order is is pretty good because it's only five minutes of work. I went with a driver who did that and I was really shocked at like how quickly in, a, in an, a, the most efficient version of delivery, like they're delivering like three or four or five things an hour. Um, and in that case, like, yeah, it's good. It's pretty good money like to, to make $5 off of 10 minutes of work, but you, you can't really know that. So I, I don't have a, a firm answer. I think being generous is nice, is, is good. Like being generous is always good um, because you, can't, you also don't know if the restaurant is going to screw over the driver. Um, but it's like, the truth is the app should be paying the drivers. It shouldn't be the tip. You know what I mean? Yeah. The tip is, is such an unreliable, it's an unreliable way for, mm. for drivers to get paid. So I'm just not a fan of it in general that they relied on that model because the tip came from the restaurant model, right? right. Where, you, where you are busing a lot of tables simultaneously, right? Like if you've ever worked as a waiter or waitress, you have a couple of tables. So you you right. know, like if this table doesn't tip, the other table will tip. As a delivery driver, you're doing one dry, a delivery at a time, yeah. most of the time. So y- you do not know how profitable it'll be until it's done. And mm-hmm. as a consumer, that's not really on you to know that. Uh, it's kind of a bummer, but like we can't do anything to control that. Be generous. That's all I can say, I guess. <laughs> I do probably 20%, 25%. That's what I do. But maybe now that you're saying it, I'm like, maybe I should just do a flat rate. Maybe you're right. I love a flat rate. Flat rates are the way to, to live our lives. Um, True. <laughs> this has been so informative and I'm sure we're all going to um, cook tonight and, <laughs> or pick up ourselves. But would you like to play a silly game show? Absolutely. I love silly game shows. Yay. So you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a couple of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then um, I just decide whose answer I like better. Okay, great. That sounds great. (laughs) So the first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of 17 years is publishing a romance novel that is incredibly autobiographical, except for the main plot, which showcases the main character clearly based on your partner having an elaborate affair with their neighbor who is clearly based on your actual neighbor. Would you stay with this fictional cheater? Did I know that they were attracted to the neighbor? No, not until you read the manuscript. And so my assumption is that they are hooking up? I don't know. Uh, they say that they're not, that nothing's actually happened, but they clearly have this elaborate fantasy life with the neighbor that they based an entire book off of. So what's the truth? Do we know the truth? We're just, they, we're just they, full- nothing has actually happened. They just oh. wrote, they just spent hours and hours writing this book about your neighbor. Does the neighbor know? Well, no, but the based on the pages, it seems like the neighbor's been pretty flirty. <laughs> Is the neighbor going to read the book? It depends how well it does. 
well, is the neighbor horrified or, or like really happy? That's that's another question too. Like, is your like because the other element is like, like your partner is like a creep also. Like, <laughs> right. it's not mutual and like has has developed this fantasy world that it's not based in reality. Also, at this point, the neighbor has yet to read the book because it's it's going into publication. Right. But okay, but is the neighbor into my partner? The the neighbor's always been very friendly. And it appears like maybe flirty, but you don't know how much is in your partner's head. I don't want to police my partner's art, so I will stay. Okay. Yeah, I would have a lot of conversations. I don't think it would be like, <laughs> I don't think it would be like the first, my first thing would be like, this is over. I don't think I would, I would start there. I would definitely start with a lot of conversations about this because it is a little funny, but I also, you know, I don't know. I would, I, I, I would probably also stay. <laughs> how am I portrayed in the book? Not well. Aww. But do they say and that? And at that... the end of the book, the, they leave you for the neighbor. Wow. But they go, it's just fiction. Don't worry, honey baby. That's their name for you. Yeah, that sucks. But yeah. I guess I would stay. Yeah, I think I would also stay. But I, I, it would, it would, I would have a lot of doubts. And I would, 17 <laughs> years is a long time. I know. I'm in a 10-year relationship. So I feel like, I, I, I feel like I'm thinking about it in that context. But What would you do if it was your partner right now? I would be very surprised because they are not a writer. <laughs> um I don't know. I don't know. I think I would stay in the beginning and start opening some doors though in the back. Uh, I think that's basically where I'd be. Well, unfortunately, the book becomes a major hit and they leave you for the neighbor. No! no! I'm sorry. I don't control this universe. Yes, you do. <laughs> but you do. Wow, you, you tortured us. Oh, that's only the first one. It's all torture, baby. <laughs> Here we go. Our second one. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, 14, has been hanging out with a new group of girls who you consider to be very rude and not a good influence. To prevent the friendship, you start to hang out with them whenever they are over at your house and force them to watch animal YouTube videos and play charades. Eventually, they stop coming to your house because you are so annoying and stop <laughs> hanging out with your daughter. Are you a terrible parent? <laughs> no, I think you're a good parent. You're a great parent. Really? Yeah, because if they were her true friends, they would still stay. They would still hang out. Just not at your house. Yeah, but they're showing their true colors and they're not real friends. They're not sticking around through the embarrassment of having me as a, as a parent. Yeah, I think when you're a teenager, you definitely feel like everyone is out to get you. And it's like the people that you like, their actions should be forgiven. Like you forgive a lot of really bad stuff. I know. But if somebody can't like spend time with your parents, that means they're probably not. I mean, like watching animal YouTube videos in terms of like weird parent behavior, like isn't so bad. You know what but I mean? Like hours. Hours of it. It's all videos from 2015 everyone's already seen. I'm just imagining your kid is at school and everyone calls them like monkey mom kid or whatever. Like it ruins their reputation. Yeah, that really rolls off the tongue. Monkey, monkey mom, mom kid. kid. <laughs> Bananas bozo. Okay, I think you are a good parent. And I think that your kid will grow up and hate you. But they will be very polite. <laughs> Maybe I'll just go on a whim and say, yeah, I think I think you're a bad parent because you could have come up with a better tactic. You know like what I mean? What? Like, like what? Yeah, like what, Ahmed? What do you think? Well, I would I would ramp up. Hours in the beginning is not great. You know what I mean? <laughs> you gotta talk to them one on one first before you show them YouTube videos. It feels okay. like a stalling tactic. You know what I mean? It feels like a stalling tactic. I, I would definitely not start there. I, by the way, this exact scenario happened to me where my parents were. I was a very 
classic Muslim like teenager kid in the sense that I was like raised with parents who just were like, you know, you don't date, you don't do drugs, you don't whatever. And like, I was obviously like, you know, as it was a teenager who was like, had attract, was attracted to people and like had crushes on people, but right. I was definitely not doing any drugs. No, n- like nothing bad. My parents were convinced that my friends were a horrible influence on me. And like that, I, that I was like a huge stoner, which I was not in high school at all. And they just kicked them out of the house, which worked for me, I guess. I never, I like, I continued to be the same throughout most of my, <laughs> my high school years. So I don't know, maybe, maybe just let them do their thing. They'll figure it out. My dad has this thing. He says, you, you can only guide a kid. You can't control them. Wow. That's so healthy. So he's, he, he said they will do what they make their own decisions. I don't know where he came up with this, but, and I think the animal YouTube video is trying to control them. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. I think that. What about the charades? Charades is like. Pretty fun. It is fun, but it's like, <laughs> they have to like it. You have to, yeah. you have to get on their level. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I say bad parents. We'll go with good intentions, poor execution, parent. That's the final answer. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Our final game. Is this a date? You get invited to a housewarming party, but are nervous about attending because of the Delta variant. There is a ton of yummy food available, but you can't eat it because you're wearing your mask indoors. The only other person wearing a mask approaches you and asks if you would like to eat outside with them on the sidewalk six feet apart. Is this a date? (laughs) Wow, somebody plot twists. I forgot that it was, is this a date? I say no, I don't think it's a date. I feel like I've been, I mean, I've been in that scenario before, I feel like. and You've asked a stranger to eat on the sidewalk with you six feet (laughs) apart? Stranger, a stranger. No, I guess not, not a stranger. I think it's a date. Why? Because they're asking you to go outside. You're probably going to talk privately. Obviously, because you're six feet apart, you're not going to kiss. Not yet. Okay, are you going to exchange phone numbers? I can't tell you that. You have to decide in the moment of it's a date before the end of the date. Am I into them? Well, from what you can see of their eyes, I, yes. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to see. Uh, they have nice eyes. They have nice eyes. I think it's a date. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a date. I think it's a breakout room of the party that's just gone outside. It's like an extension. <laughs> it's like in the party cinematic universe, you know what I mean? But it's not. It's its own spinoff date, you know, if you know what I mean? Well, I hate to break it to you, but it is a date, and it's the most romantic date you've ever Damn. had. I win! Because there there's nice lights outside. It's secluded. <laughs> Um, there's the buzzing of the insects. That's sort of nice ambiance. <laughs> <laughs> what are we eating? Frog legs. So that part's not great. <laughs> you didn't know what it was. <laughs> and you're making eight feet eye contact the whole time while you're eating the fr- frog legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so beautiful. A guy walks up with a violin, starts playing. <laughs> and you're like, get away from us. You're not wearing a mask. <laughs> Wow. Oh, wow. Well, Evan, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at RadBrownDads. That's probably my most prolific place. I just wrote a piece for Eater about these like illicit WhatsApp mangoes. People are paying like $35 for a box of mangoes uh, off of WhatsApp. I'm like a food writer and podcaster. Uh, And then Delivery Wars is on podcast platforms everywhere. Sorry, I forgot what they were called. Um, You can find Delivery Wars, uh, you know, anywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for having me. This was great. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about getting older. Uh oh.
back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics! X, 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 baby. 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 Which is interesting that we say baby for an episode about old age. <laughs> well, not old age, but getting older. Here's the thing. I, I have started getting work done in the sense that lips doesn't really have to do with age. But I have filler in my cheeks. I've been telling myself it's a trans thing. I'm like, I want more of a masculine jawline. It's like a trans thing. But it's not. It's more of like, I mean, in some ways, maybe subconsciously. It is just because of vanity, because of like sagging sort of jowls. And I have a lot of weirdness around like mommy issues. But I have a lot of weirdness around like me looking so much like my mom. Mm. And my mom looking so much like her mother. And sometimes I like it. And sometimes I see pictures of my grandmother. I see my mom. See, It looks like looking at like a Dorian Gray painting of like myself. Mm-hmm. And then I get like really, and my mom looks great. My mom like, you know, takes care of her her body and like does all this workout stuff, has like a little like workout pedal thing under her desk while she works. And like, is like pretty like fine. But I get like some sort of like weird heart palpitation about like seeing my future. Because do you associate being old with being bad? Okay, two things. One, I love getting older in terms of like wisdom and ability Mm -hmm. to function. And like the way that like things don't, bother me as much and that is also like time and growth in like working on my bipolar disorder where I I'm less chaotic I don't jump to anger like I don't jump to this is the worst thing ever and I'm gonna die and like all this kind of stuff about like minor annoyances especially I see it in like conflict with Mal where I don't go I go this is fine you don't need to blow this up you don't need to make it a whole thing like in terms of like wisdom and stuff it's great and perspective in terms of what I look like I'm very concerned about being hot (laughs) and I have a lot of weirdness, even though like friends of mine, like I objectively see friends of mine in their 40s and 50s who are gorgeous and not in a way where it's like, oh, they like, you know, are are stereotypically. But like, I think, oh, that person is attractive, but I can't extend it to myself. Why is it so important to you to be hot? I don't know. I just started getting in my head about people in their 20s thinking I'm old. I think I'm dealing with obviously like a lot of unspooling the the tie between like being sexually attractive to other people and my worth. Uh, And I'm really like pushing that, like getting that, getting rid of that. But then I like see my arms in a picture and I'm like, oh my God, they're sagging. And like, I get really upset. Or like, I think about like, sometimes I just look at my hands and I'm like, oh my God, are these gonna become like old person hands? But then I don't judge other people. I just judge myself. I don't know. What's your aging situation? I'm trying to be okay with it and embrace it and stuff. I think that for me, like, I'm thinking about, like, will I ever get work done? Like, what does that mean if I did get work done? Because part of me feels like if I do get work done, what I'm telling myself is that the only way to look beautiful is to look young. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's something that I want to reinforce in myself. For now, it feels like 
that's not something I really want to pursue. And I'd rather just like embrace the aging process and be more okay with that. And like, I'm seeing more gray hairs and like, they don't freak me out. It's more just like, Oh, look at that. But Mm -hmm. I think that the thing that is starting to like rear its head a bit more is the the childbirth of it all. Oh, well, do you know what you want? I don't know. I mean, you know, I I want to have a stable, successful career and I want to have children. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I want to have children without having a stable, successful career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) So that feels tricky and it feels more like there is a my life got set back in a way mm. by like having this broken engagement restarting again. Like I'm, I'm nowhere near being in a place to have kids. Like, and so just feeling a bit of that time pressure and like the reality of like how exhausting it is to have children and being like, yeah. will it be really tough to be an older parent? Like, mm-hmm. will I ever feel like stable enough to do it? Is it even selfish to do it when the world might not be here for them. Yeah. So I think that that is like where the age thing comes in the most for me. But like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely like consciously thinking about like, I, I look different. That's okay. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to fight this process of, of getting older. I want to figure out a way to have like a healthy relationship to it. It's holding two things at once. It's saying that like, looking older doesn't mean you're less beautiful and then also not caring as much about how you look. (laughs) So it's like doing those two things at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I have no concept of who, who is what age, like when Mm -hmm. I'll see like someone who's like in their sixties and I'll be like, the person's so hot. And they'll be like, that person's in their sixties. And I'll be like, what? I think it's more divorced from attractiveness and also attractiveness is so subjective. Like it's so, so, so subjective. So like to me being like, oh my God, I need to look how I looked when I was 25. That's when I was hot is like, I mean, to who, you know what I mean? It's was subjective the whole time. I'm an acquired taste. And so I don't know. But then for myself, I, I want to, I want to look like a real housewife. I don't know. Like (laughs) I, I want to get work done. I try to be open about it. Right. So like if someone comments and they're, they say anything about my lips or anything, I am always like, they're not real, you know, or I try Mm -hmm. to like, I think age is like so all over the place because people, what you've had done, how you dress, like how you keep your hair. There's like this really fun TikTok where this girl was like, I'm in my 30s and I look like this. And how come in the 50s, women in their 30s looked so old? Mm -hmm. And then she went and did her hair and makeup, how it was fashionable in the 50s for women that age and was like, I look old like it's (laughs) it's all it's so dependent on like subjective stuff. Yeah. And I guess I just have also been waiting to feel like I understand things better. (laughs) And like, you know, that whole thing of like, I feel much more emotionally stable and wise about some stuff, but then other like practical things. I'm like, oh, I still don't know how to do this. I feel uh, we've talked about this on the show, but I, I feel like an adult. I feel like I've had to read things and like figure out stuff. I have a mortgage now. I have a mortgage like also like my sister was staying here and she used up a lot of electricity. We got the electricity bill and it was really high. And I was like stomping around being like, there's nothing growing on trees. Like I'm old. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I old is so subjective. I have no idea. I mean, May, my grandmother May May was like in her 90s and she looked like she dressed like a teenager. You know what I mean? There's no. It's like subjective. I don't know. I think I'm just getting scared in terms of like my parents getting older and the older I get, the older my parents are. Oh, uh, yeah, that totally. Whole thing is like very scary to me. My dad's elderly. I mean, my dad's like, you know, in his mid 70s. He's an mm-hmm. old man. And you'll see like, um, you know, peep obituaries and it'll be like 
died at 75 and everyone will be like, he lived a good life. And I'll be like, what? Like, people, you know, like people think that it's young, I guess, but because people live to be like 100 or ni- in their 90s. But nobody's like, oh, wow, so tragic. He died so young at 75. But to me, like my he looks elderly now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that is like, you know, weird and, and new where it's like I've gotten older, but he's like you have to kind of accept to me, I have to accept that he's like old, old, you know, I refuse to accept that my parents are older, that they'll ever die. How old are how old are your parents? So young. <laughs> no, my dad's about to turn, I think, 67. Mm-hmm. And my mom's going to turn. My mom just turned 66. Yeah, my parents are. I mean, my mom's that, around that age. My dad is like old man dad. Like I have old man yeah. dad. That's the next big transition of like, but they, I, I don't know, like I, my parents seem really young to me. That's the other thing, right? It's like your perception of age completely changes. Where like mm-hmm. when I was younger in your 60s was old and now I'm like, my parents aren't old. Like I genuinely mm-hmm. don't feel like they're old. So somehow like coming to terms with like everything, again, just staying in the moment and mm-hmm, appreciating mm-hmm. things as they are and also not seeing aging as like inherently bad or like right. a, de- a decrease in, in your value, even though our society tries to suggest What highlights for me, too, is Mal's niece, Harper, who is two now. When I started dating Mal, Steph was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And like now Harper is two and like fully is like, Gabby, come and like talks to me. And I'm like, like and we were talking about Mal and I, how crazy it is that Harper will be like a teenager and just be like, you know, this is my aunt. They've always been here. And like that. It's sort of like how I have an uncle who is married to my aunt, who I've never thought about as not related to me. Right. And so as Harper gets older, you know, like uh, Harper, if Har- when Harper's eight, it's really going to like be wild to me. And I said, I was, I'm very close with my aunt. Obviously, we had her on the show. Check out the episode, Michelle Dunbaker. And I was talking to her and I was like, is it wild to you that I'm 33 and like calling you on the phone? And she was like, every time <laughs> she was like, it is like you were a baby. And like now you're like, giving me advice (laughs) like like she was like yeah it feels nuts that you are like almost 30 the 35 years have gone by almost like Mm -hmm. because I feel like I'm gonna feel that way about Harper where I'm gonna be like Harper's gonna be like going to college and I'm gonna be like that was yesterday you were too yeah I mean my niece is seven I my other niece is four it's like it's like time flies but you're like I'm the same or wait no I'm not (laughs) I'm actually not the same at all (laughs) yeah and like you know you see pictures of Michelle sort of like holding me and mm-hmm. you're like, that baby is me. Yeah. Whenever you feel old, just look at a baby photo and go, that baby is me. That's our big That advice. baby was was me. <laughs> and like now she's like, a, you know, she's going through a bit of a tough time with Steven um, because he's sick again. And like, I'm like, you know, talking to her and comforting her and talking to him and stuff. And, and I'm like, you guys like saw me poop my pants. <laughs> Melissa, you want to come on in and share your thoughts? Age. We're getting older every day. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all we needed. That's it. <laughs> Melissa, if you, would you go to the beach that makes you old? That makes me old? The beach, the old beach. I know the movie that you're talking <laughs> about, but no, I like to enjoy every day as it is. Yeah. I don't need to see into the future or go to the past. Well, I think about going to the past all the time, but yeah, I don't need to get older. Like I was born when my eyes, nose and ears and mouth were the same size as they are now, but just on a tiny head. So like I, as I've gotten older and grown, like I think my features have spread out to a place. Like if I had to go back to middle school 
and you and just like imagine this like Mr. Potato Head situation on a smaller head. I look so much better now. <laughs> so I would not want to go to a place that made me younger because I think I look at pictures from college and I'm like, what? Were you even what is that haircut? Like, what were you doing? Why are your glasses so tiny? Like, but it was good for that time. You yeah. Don't remember things in at that specific time. It I thought good. I was hot shit. And yeah, I looked... and you were at that time. Yeah, it's really rough. So what do we rate this episode? I will rate it 72 out of 58 gig economies. Ooh, I will rate it 100 out of 99 hot old people who are just <laughs> thriving in the assisted living facility getting getting it on i'm gonna give it nine out of six long distance figuring stuff out relationships hey yes me and mal are a product of one of those baby yeah you success are. story you could go on the long distance circuit and just really talk about making it work <laughs> yeah i mean that's so gay like drew's in a long distance thing right now like it's just like classic <laughs> Thank you so much to Emmett Ali Akbar for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam. Or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at Emotional Support. Support Lady at Gabby Road at BWM Pod and at She Is Not Melissa. And if you like this podcast, please leave an Apple review and a rating. It really helps us. Like, we really, really need them. I know everyone asks, but please leave one for us if you like the show. It helps us so much. Go to Apple and leave a five star review and a rating. You can write whatever you want. And, um, and yeah, please, 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 we would really appreciate it. Bye. Forever. Yeah.